from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Adelia Ellis. Adelia grew up as a Baha'i in rural South Carolina in the 70s. She's now an educator who spent six years in Korea in service to promoting the oneness of humanity. I started the interview by asking Adelia where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in South Carolina um, between Hartsville, South Carolina, Darlington, and Florence. They actually were pretty small towns. Hartsville is definitely, um, and Darlington are definitely pretty small. Florence kind of grew um, over the years that I was there, but it's not it's still considered rural south. I was born into a Baha'i family. Both of my parents are Baha'is in rural South Carolina. And my memory of the religious community um, when I was younger was it was very vibrant, a lot of singing, a lot of happiness. I just remember a lot of very, um, a lot of energy. A lot of the people who were Baha'is at that time were fairly new Baha'is. And so they were very excited about learning more about this faith. We were still kind of coming out of the civil rights era, and so this was the first time in many, in probably <laughs> the history of the United States, that you saw open fellowship between blacks and whites without fear of there being repercussions from the police or things like that. Um, of course, that was an issue in some places, but during this time, I think that the civil rights movement had really progressed our country to a point where it became easier and easier for people of different races to come together in fellowship. And one of the main principles of the Baha'i faith being the oneness of humanity and overcoming um, all types of prejudice and racism being one of those. And so you had this amazing energy, people being able to come together and fellowship and, and worship and really change the way the dynamics of their communities were up until this point. And so as a child, I just remember growing up. For me, it was more than being a part of a religious community. This was my family in many ways. Lots of people that were older than me, I called them auntie and uncle, and they were my grandmothers, and I didn't know. I mean, this is before the time you have a concept of, grandparents and lineage and things like that. So I had all these grandmothers and grandfathers, and, you know, I didn't realize just that uh, these were people who were not necessarily my grandparents by blood, but in spirit. They definitely were like my, my grandparents. And so I grew up really in a, in a community that felt more like family. Growing up in the South during that time, my mom is white and my um, father is black, 
growing up in the, the towns I was in, me and my brothers and my sister were basically the only children who were mixed at that time, biracial. And that brought with it its own tests and difficulties, not because we had issues with understanding who we were, but because the community that we were living in, um, the greater community outside of the Baha'i community, still had really negative and very deeply rooted prejudices when it came to blacks and whites, um, not just being together as friends, but definitely as marriage partners. Definitely for me as a child, the Baha'i community was my haven in many ways because so many children were like me. There were so many of my peers were interracial, came from interracial families, and I didn't feel so odd, I guess you could say, or so different because I knew there were many other children like me. That part of growing up was a little bit difficult, but I feel like because of growing up in a, in a Baha'i community that completely was different from the society I was living in at the time, I think it was really a, a helpful thing for me to have that, that contrast. Grew up also as a youth, was very involved at um, a Baha'i center called uh, Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute in Hemingway, South Carolina, and I just remember being there from the time I was like four or five. That particular place played an integral part in my growth, understanding the Baha'i faith, in my service to the greater community. And a lot of my close friends I met were children who came to Lewis Gregory from other places for programs or for summer camps and things like that. The Baha'i radio station... WLGI. I was there when the grand opening happened, and it was amazing. There were thousands of people came, and I remember Dizzy Gillespie. He was a Baha'i coming and playing with the jazz orchestra, and as a child, not really having much of a understanding or respect for the musical genre of jazz, but I got to actually meet Dizzy Gillespie, and he was so funny. Like He loved being around the children, and he would blow his cheeks up. <laughs> and we'd all just laugh and laugh and get him to do it again. And particularly when I was a youth and even younger, it was just a very dynamic time in the Baha'i community in South Carolina. Lots of beautiful, happy memories growing up. School must have been a stark contrast to your Baha'i community life. Yeah, um, I kind of touched on that a little bit, but um, definitely... Not only because I was biracial, but also because I wasn't Christian. Mm. Really learning how to be myself when I was surrounded by people who thought they were so unlike me or that I was so unlike them. I think especially when it came to making friends with people, I had, you know, I really had a lot of acquaintances at school, but really having, you know, when people talk about having sleepovers and having all these great memories, maybe with friends from school, that wasn't my experience. I think, too, growing up, being going to school at a time when um, we were still very close. And in many ways, I feel like we still have a lot of work to do in our education system when it comes to race. But I can Speaking from my own experience as a child going to school in, in South Carolina, I was viewed as a black child. 
even though my mom was white. And it, in all honesty, I don't think it really should have mattered whether whether I was considered black or not. Like, some people, they were able to, I guess you could say, assimilate easily because of maybe their hair or their skin color. But me, I was very different. My hair is very, very curly. I had a darker skin tone. My mom was pretty active when we were younger coming to school, so people could tell that, I mean, they look at my mom and she's blonde hair and, you know, pale skin and blue eyes, and it's obvious that, you know, we're half black. And so just my experience in school was, um, particularly in second grade, I had a very difficult time just being sat in the back of the classroom and just feeling really left out. Um, a lot of the, the students who were who were white, you know, the teacher knew their parents. It seemed like she knew them personally. And there was always kind of this camaraderie going on in the classroom. But I noticed that amongst me and the students in the class who were black, we were kind of on the fringes of that. Mm. And the expectations I felt for us to succeed educationally were very low. And I just remember as I got older and I started junior high school, I started noticing how the numbers of black students would dwindle when I started going into, like, AP-level courses. I'd be one of the only kids in the classroom who wasn't white. So just that experience, I knew for myself that I knew a lot of black children who were very intelligent. And I couldn't understand why they weren't in these upper-level classes also. And so for me, the contrast was really important because here I was going to school in a school system that expected so little of me. But then um, on the weekends or during the summer or even during the week during, you know, different Baha'i gatherings, I would have a completely different experience. The adults in my community really worked hard to to help me and my siblings and the other children in the community to really develop our capacity for public speaking, for um, understanding the history of our religion, the expectation for us to succeed and excel in our studies so that we could even um, be able to understand the our religion even better. I mean, literacy is the being able to read and comprehend is is a is a gateway to understanding truly understanding um, religious scripture, and so I experienced something completely different in my Baha'i community, where independent investigation of the truth is one of the principles of our faith, and you can't really fully search for something independently if you're not able to read and comprehend the sacred scriptures from the different faiths of the world. So my experience was extremely different, and I'm very happy for that contrast because I really do believe, believe had I not had that contrast of the Baha'i faith and the Baha'i community expecting and having just a innate, it felt like an innate um, belief in my ability to reach my own nobility as a human being. The writings of our faith talk about that, remembering our nobility. 
And that contrast was so helpful to the school system that I was finding myself being educated in where so little was expected Mm. of me. And then, of course, um, my high school experience was very different. I went to Maxwell International Baha'i School. It was a um, Baha'i boarding school located on Vancouver Island in the British Columbia. And from ninth grade to twelfth grade, I went to school there, and I was just completely different experience from South Carolina, which at this point in South Carolina, was everything was black or white, literally black or white. And then I go to the school where there's children and youth there my age from all over the world, I mean literally all over the world, and having to get used to different accents and languages and getting used to interacting with people coming from completely different cultural backgrounds, which then brings with it different cultural expectations. It really, for me, opened wide this con- the concept and the belief and the truth and that is um, espoused in the Baha'i faith, that we are all one family. So then to find myself at Maxwell, Baha'i school, definitely, I feel, was a saving grace from having to go to a public high school in South Carolina. My uh, sophomore year at Maxwell, I almost didn't return, and so I went to a regular public school for like a week, <laughs> and oh boy, <laughs> it was like, I remember walking into one of my classrooms, and it was literally the students had, had segregated themselves into black and white, and here I was, this mixed girl, needing to choose, being expected to choose between these two groups. Just all of the, the separations that happened in high school, where you ate lunch, decided whether you were cool or not or who your friends were. And it was that one week, I must say that the decision I made, I think, even in elementary school, was I was okay with being alone. I guess I would have been considered a loner by most people in the school system in South Carolina. I was nice to people, and people were nice to me, and I interacted at school. I wasn't unapproachable, but I, if I had to eat lunch alone, I ate lunch alone. And if I was just used to kind of being by myself because I didn't want to have to conform to what was expected of me, then I went back to, I was able to go to Maxwell, and I finished up there, and um, just having that experience of that one week <laughs> in a public school in South Carolina really helped me not take for granted the experience I had at Maxwell. Never feeling that again, never walking into a room and feeling like I had to choose where to sit. So that kind of is an idea of what my, (laughs) what it was like growing up in the school system as a Baha'i. You had said that, I guess it must've been when you were in middle school, junior high school, that you noticed a lot of intelligent black kids weren't going to these AP courses. Right. And maybe you can explain to folks why that was. Well, I'm speaking about this now as I'm actually now, I have a master's degree in teaching. I'm act, I am a teacher. And so just know that this is going to be maybe a little bit <laughs> also informed years later. Sure. 
as an adult woman, but I can say what I intuited as a junior high school student and what no one talked about. I remember when I first came into, I was in an English AP class, and it was me and one other um, young black lady in seventh grade that were in the same class. I remember looking at her and seeing how uncomfortable she was. We were in this class where a lot of the, the students all knew each other. They were already friends. Their parents knew each other. They were the quote-unquote part of the popular crowd in school. They played the sports together. They were cheerleaders. They were So some could say, oh, it was just a result of the separations that kids normally do based on their little cliques. But that's not at all, from my experience, what I saw happening. By the middle of that semester, she was gone. I also know that part of it, too, is the pressure from the black children at school, too. Unfortunately, the belief for many, many years, and I think this is a direct result of the institution of slavery in America. I grew up in South Carolina, which was one of the major hubs. Slaves were brought in through Charleston, South Carolina. You can drive down country roads and see um, remnants of plantations. It's very close there, and some of us, even my great-grandmother, remembers the end of slavery. And a lot of our parents grew up during the segregation period in, this, in, in South Carolina. And unfortunately, this oppression that's happened over centuries and centuries the civil rights movement, I think a lot of people like to look at the civil rights movement and say, well, hey, we're all equal. We're all equal. We can all go to the same schools. And somehow it seems that because legally now everything is integrated, that somehow racism was wiped out. And somehow the effects of the oppression of an entire group of people somehow was wiped out in, in this time period of civil rights movement. But it wasn't. And so if you can imagine for centuries experiencing the subjugation, not being able to read because it's against the law and not being able to interact and not being able to go to higher level education because it was against the law, you could be killed just for simply reading. So what I believe is also a result of this is this belief that came to be embraced, that black children, being smart was meant you were acting white, and doing well in school was acting white. And so to be in these classes also with all these white children who all knew each other, whose families knew each other, to already feel alienated in that, in that surrounding, in that classroom, and the teacher making no effort to at all make it any easier for you, but then to also be experiencing from your peers, maybe not from the parents and maybe not from the grandparents who are probably very proud of you for being in the AP class, but your peers, your friends, the people that you spend time with after school and that maybe you eat lunch with at school, they are all in these lower classes. They are not in AP classes. They're in either in the middle of the line classes or they're in the remedial classes. 
And that separation in junior high school is like at that time in your life when you're trying to understand who you are and your place in the world, I think it proves to be too much. So that's speaking from a, an intuitive kind of like growing up in this system that I grew up in. I understood the weeding out. I saw it with my own eyes as I grew up in this system. I saw how it happened, but I couldn't at the time, you know, intellectually, <laughs> I didn't have any understanding of history to be able to explain what I was seeing. But now as an educator and knowing just how racism was institutionalized as a result of slavery. So to think that our justice system and our educational system and our health care system are free of racial prejudice when for hundreds and hundreds of years that was the status quo, it'd be unbelievable to me to think that all of that was wiped out because of the civil rights movement. From my experience also as an older sister, I have two brothers. I have three younger brothers and a younger sister, and two of my brothers are twins. I remember one day they came home from school. There had always been, amongst the kids in school, there had always been an understanding what was called tracking, where you would, at some point in your education, usually around first or second grade, the children started getting separated into levels, and you stayed in those levels. If it was decided that you should be in the remedial class, you stayed in the remedial class all through your education. So my younger brothers, they came, they came home one day, and uh, me and my brother, who was a little bit older than him, we were picking on them because, you know, they got put into this remedial class. And my mother came home from work, and she heard us. And the twins, of course, were very upset by this. I'm not, you know, I wasn't a very, I wasn't always a great older sister. <laughs> but anyway. Um, <laughs> Sounds like you were pretty normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she comes home and the twins are crying and upset because me and my brother are picking on them for being in this lower level class. And my mom, this is the first she'd ever heard of this. This was not an uncommon thing. This is where, this is when a, where a lot of the black students found themselves separated with an elementary school into, you started seeing probably by around sixth grade, especially by sixth grade, there was this, this complete weeding out of the black students and the white, and from, from the white students as far as level of education, what you were going to receive in the classroom. And my mom wasn't aware of this, and so me and my brother kind of explained to her, well, yeah, you know, this is what happened. And she um, became very angry, and she actually went to the superintendent of schools and demanded that my brothers be taken out of this class. That experience for us was very telling. And at the time, I didn't realize what was going on. I mean, at the time, I didn't realize the weight of it. We just thought it was funny. You know, we just thought it was, you know, something more to pick on my brothers about. But now as an adult, looking back on it, I realized how that experience encapsulates the experience of so many children of color in our school system. So that's just an example of kind of what happened 
when we were younger children as a result of our mixed race. I do believe we probably would have had very different experiences had we just been white children. Adalia, where are you teaching now? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, that's interesting in that it's taken me on quite a journey. I, uh, I was teaching in Korea for six years, and I'm back in the States. The current edu- economic crisis, there's all kinds of funds being lost to the education system here. So teachers are being laid off and new teachers are not being hired. And as a result of that, I looked for a job all this year and the only place I was able to find a job as a teacher was overseas. So my husband and I will actually be moving to the United Arab Emirates in August to Abu Dhabi where I'll be a public school teacher. All right, well, let's backtrack then. So what did you do after high school? After high school, I went on a year of service. This is something that is really encouraged for Baha'i youth to do, to take a year off and either go to another country or or offer service for a year in your home Baha'i community or in any community, honestly. It doesn't have to just be a Baha'i community. And uh, what I chose to do was to be a part of a performing arts group called Diversity Dance Workshop, and that was located in Seattle, Washington. In this group, we performed at high schools and junior high schools and elementary schools on issues of social importance like racism, overcoming racism, overcoming sexism, um, looking at the effects of drugs and alcohol on young people. So a lot of these social issues we performed about using dance and drama. And then I left probably about midway into into that year and came back to South Carolina and finished up my year of service in South Carolina. Doing what? I was assisting the Baha'i community in contacting Baha'is who we hadn't been in touch with for a long time, reconnecting with Baha'is in the Florence-Darlington area. That completed that year of service, and then I um, went on to go to university. I went to Coastal Carolina University. It's near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I got my um, bachelor's degree in history. After I did my bachelor's degree, I went to Chicago, and I was there for a year working at the Baha'i National Center in the office of the Secretariat. So there I just basically, you know, I was an assistant to the Secretary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, opening mail, responding to correspondence, things like that. From there, I decided to go overseas to assist the Baha'i community in Korea. Now, why Korea? So, there's something that a lot of Baha'is end up doing at some point in their life, and it's called pioneering, and that's when you go to a different country or even a different state and offer your service to that community to help that Baha'i community. So in the year I was at the Baha'i National Center, I decided to go to Korea to do pioneering. It was kind of because I loved teaching, and I just happened to go onto a website, a job searching website, and on it it was like teach English in Korea, <laughs> and <laughs> that's basically how I ended up there. I um, responded 
to the ad and got in contact with the school there. But the interesting thing a part about that story is I had a friend that I worked with at the Baha'i National Center who um, went to school with a young woman who was already in Korea teaching, and she got me in touch with her. I sent her friend my resume and that type of thing, and she talked to the director of the school in Korea, and he contacted me, and I was hired. It literally took all of two months from the time I decided to go, and then I left maybe about four months later. I went to Korea. And what was it like there? Oh, man, Korea was amazing. I was there for six years. I loved being there. I made a lot of friends, Korean friends, while I was there. And I must say that my last year I was there, my sixth year in Korea, this was one of the things that was kind of like, okay, Adelia, it's time for you to go home. There is one aspect that at first Koreans can come across as being very cold, and it can seem very difficult to break that barrier. But luckily, my experience from my first year up until my sixth year was completely the opposite. By luck or by chance, I'm not sure what it was, I just got to meet some of the most incredible people while I was there. And I found the um, complete contrast to what your initial experience was. My Korean friends were extremely warm. Once you are friends, you're always friends. That was the thing that stuck with me most of all, is that once you are a friend there, the friends I made, they basically would do or be, you know, help you with anything or be there for you through anything. It was an amazing experience. I got to meet a lot of beautiful people through kind of a service I kind of fell into, to tell you the truth, working with the UNESCO Foundation in Seoul. I put together a program called Hip Hop Education. It was geared towards helping young Koreans to better understand African-American people. I saw a lot of very disturbing things, like with their, in their media about African-Americans, lots of stereotypes. And I thought, you know, what better way to educate than through the arts? And hip-hop has gone all over the world, (laughs) and it has become, I think, an art form of the youth everywhere, and definitely in Korea that was true. And so I kind of tapped into that and was able to work with this UNESCO foundation that did programs specifically for youth in Seoul, just met a lot of beautiful young people doing that project. With, um, it was called the Mizzy, the Mizzy Center. That was an amazing experience really humbling in many ways, coming to understand just how similar we all are in our worries and our concerns and our understandings about the world. We're all very similar. And through that process, I actually met two students in particular who came to the program. I became very close to them and their families and was basically unofficially adopted as as sister and daughter into their families, which is a, um, I can't quite explain the honor that that is, that that means in Korean culture. But 
their parents saw that my connection with their daughter or their son was so important that I was just enveloped as family. So I left Korea with a Korean sister and a Korean brother. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't definitely in the plan when I went there. And I also got to be a part of Toastmasters, the international public speaking organization, and met a lot of incredible, intelligent, just moving, earth-moving people in Toastmasters. That country is definitely in good hands. There's a lot of very dynamic, very forward-thinking young people living in Korea, and I got to meet a lot of them in Toastmasters. So my experience there was a very beautiful one. I guess a couple of things. I guess it was a big deal. You're saying culturally it's a, it's a big deal for a Korean family to culturally adopt, however you want to word it, someone outside as a nominal sister-daughter thing. Because the culture has been is so homogenous, and it's been basically up and it has, it's been a very recent development, extremely recent development for Korea It was as a result of the Korean War that Korea was completely devastated during the Korean War. And it's amazing if you ever get to go there, the within a generation, what they've done. That country is now leading the world technologically and everything. And but up until that point, Korea was very, very closed. And so we're looking at a generation later, these young people that I became close to and was like family to their parents grew up during the ending of that closed-off period. So here I am, and even in Korea, people who, white is very revered there. Light-skinned, I mean, a lot of people who are dark-skinned or who are black are not hired in Korea. They They really want white people to work there because... That's what they think is where the superiority, I mean, where you can get the superior educators is from the white community. And so, for one, for me to be embraced by these families that I was probably, at least for one family in particular, really the first non-white person to interact with their family and then to be embraced by their family was just, yeah, it's phenomenal. The other family, my brother Jiung, his father was a very different man. He did a lot of exporting and importing, and so he interacted a lot with people from different races. So with their, his family, it wasn't nearly as, the race thing wasn't nearly as a big deal. But with my sister Sophia, her family did not have nearly the the interactions with people of other races that my brother Jiung's family did. And so her family in particular, it was amazing to me. So, yeah, they both, they call me sister. And when they did family events, I was invited. And I was asked by Jiung's parents, they were like, he's your younger brother now, you're his big sister. So you we want you to look out for him and make sure that, He's okay, and 
they sat down and talked with me about some things that he was dealing with, which is unheard of. Mm. <laughs> I mean, they actually had me sit down at their table, and they were like, these are the things we're concerned about with him, and do you have any insights as to what we can do to help? And I was floored. I mean, to go from this in one generation, to go from this closed culture to one that's opened in so many ways technologically, and then to culturally embrace someone from a completely different country who's who visibly looks so different. And I was also a Baha'i. Sophia's parents, I think her family knew that I was a Baha'i. I'm pretty sure Jiung's parents knew I was a Baha'i. And that was never that was never something brought up as an issue with either of their families. Jiung actually came to a number of Baha'i gatherings and things when I lived in Korea. It was just a very touching and unexpected experience for me. Adelia, you mentioned that by the sixth year, it was clear it was time to go home. Can you go go into that? I'm just looking back at my own life. Every stage of our lives has an ending. There's a beginning and there's an ending. I knew in my sixth year, I think that I had experienced the first four or five years just this absolute immersion into this culture, this Korean culture. And and then I'm not sure exactly. I think I came back my sixth year just already kind of feeling like, you know, Adelia, it's going to be, it's time for you to, to go home. It's time for you to, to start looking at, because, I mean, you can literally live in Korea and just be lulled into complacency. I mean, it's so easy to live there. Everything is very convenient. And so I knew in my sixth year that it was probably time for me to start looking at options outside of this living in Korea for the rest of my life because I didn't go there planning on living there for the rest of my life. So I think going there into that sixth year, already thinking it coming into my mind that it might be time for me to start looking into other options, in my last year there, I began to see a lot of the, I guess you could say, the ugly parts. So, like, in America, there's beautiful parts and there's ugly parts. And as an American, I understand there's, I can see all the beauty, but I also see some of the ugly. And when I was, that last year, I just started noticing there was this concept I grew up with, and maybe... I feel like it was very generalized, maybe, that the Asian culture is all about the collective. You know, it's all about making sure the the whole, whereas America is very individualistic. Asian culture is very group-oriented. And my experience in Korea was you were protected by the group if you belonged to the group. Mm-hmm. And it meant, even within Korea, you had your groups. And so... I just saw things, for example, me and a friend of mine were on the subway going somewhere, and it was late at night, and we were, she and I were having, it was a long trip to where we were going, and these two ladies get on the train with all these kids, and it comes to a stop, and they all get off. Well, there's this one little boy sitting on the subway, and he's knocked out, and he doesn't realize 
that they've all left. Oh and gosh. as the doors close, I think that one of the parents realized, oh, my God, you know, one of the children is still on the subway. And me and my friend, she's Irish, and we're the only foreigners sitting in this subway car. And this mother's banging on the window as the subway is speeding up, and nobody moves. Like, everyone just looks, and the subway goes off, and you can hear her yelling, and no one moves. And it wasn't like people were in shock. It was just like this absolute, well, he's not my kid. And so me and this young lady, we're both very, very thin, (laughs) and so we're not very muscular. I'm just trying to give you a view of this. Sure. And we're carrying backpacks on our backs, and we see this kid, and we're like, no one's going to help. And the next stop is coming up. And so we go, and he must have been about 10 years old, and he was dead to the world. And so it was like carrying a... I've never carried anything this heavy. Between the two of us, we were having a hard time keeping him up. No one got up to help us. The subway stopped, and the doors open, and no one helps us to get him out onto the platform. And this child starts waking up <laughs> on the platform to these two foreign women carrying him off and... I think in that moment, it was just like, and it was a buildup of things like that, that, you know, I'd experienced Korean people going way out of their way to be helpful to me and to help me get on the right bus to go somewhere. But then I was seeing these old women trip over and no one stopped to pick them up. Or um, one of my friends who was pregnant got I accidentally kind of knocked over by someone on a subway platform, and she was eight months pregnant, and she falls down, and no one helps her. Like, she's in tears because she's scared. It's her first child. I just think, for me, at that point, it was just like, okay, if these things are bothering me this much, it's time to go. It was just the buildup of all these things. And so it was, I just knew that any time a person just starts, <laughs> starts seeing mostly the ugly, it's probably a good time to, to head out yeah, yeah. and look at some new possibilities. And I think right. because I'd already gone there, knowing that it probably was about time to wrap it up, I just started seeing more and more of the things that maybe I hadn't seen the first four or five years because I wasn't in that mindset at the time. So what did you do when you left Korea? I got into grad school, and I came back to South Carolina, where I went to get my master's in teaching. While I was here, well, I guess one thing I forgot to tell you is that I'm actually, I'm also a Latin dance instructor. I'm really, I love dance, and I got involved in salsa when I was in Korea and got um, certified as a Latin dance instructor. When I came back and was doing my master's degree, that's one of the things I did was I taught dance, planned a, a couple of Latin dance conferences. Getting my master's degree was amazing in and of itself, but then um, getting involved so heavily in the, in the salsa and the Latin dance community was also a, a really beautiful thing. And near the end of my time... 
in my master's program, I met my now husband. So probably about three or four months after I graduated, I got married and moved to Charlotte, and now we are living in Atlanta, and then we're moving to the United Arab Emirates. It's been a crazy year, (laughs) (laughs) to say the least. So I have one more question for you, Dahlia. You had mentioned that there is the principle in the Baha'i faith, namely the independent investigation of truth. Right. And then there's this other concept that children of Baha'is just don't inherit their family religion, but rather Mm. at the age of 15, the Baha'i faith considers it the age of maturity in which the child becomes an independent individual to make his or her decision of her relationship with the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess I wanted to know if there was a time in your life where you realized you had to decide for yourself, is this now my religion rather than my family's or my parents' religion? Yeah, I remember that, I remember that point very distinctly. It was long before I was 15, when I was about, I'm trying, I don't remember how old this is, but I think it was the summer of my fifth grade year. Um, I guess it's around nine or ten, maybe eleven. I went on a road trip with a Baha'i family from Florence, South Carolina, South Carolina to Kansas. We were going to a summer school in Kansas, and it was my first traveling experience, and it was wow. You know, I was asking a million questions along the way, and um, we get to Kansas to this summer camp where all of the Baha'is I'd never met before were, and my experience there, hearkening back to when I first talked about growing up in the Baha'i community in South Carolina, the Baha'i community I experienced was very loving and warm and vibrant and accepting and... I never felt out of place, never felt that I didn't belong. My experience at this summer school in Kansas City, in Kansas, was my first time ever being a part of a Baha'i event that I ever felt that I didn't belong. It was my first time experiencing not being able to find friends, not being able to have friends that were Baha'is. I went to this con- this summer school, and I didn't know anybody, but I just remember being ignored by all the other kids. Like, none of them would talk to me. I wasn't included in any of, like, you know, you'd go and you'd have lunch with people or you'd go and play games. I was never included. Mm-hmm. It was me and one other girl were kind of left alone by all the other children and just felt so left out and so, you know, alienated. And I, you know, and I think that for me was a painful experience, but it also was when I made my decision. At that point, I realized that was the first time I understood that the Baha'i community is not perfect. And I understood it on an intu- on a intuitive level. I'm not sure if I intellectualized it so much. So this really was a heart thing for me at the time. It was a very much so a spiritual thing that 
I was not able to intellectualize at the time. And I just remember just separating myself from the situation and just looking at it and just knowing that I'm a Baha'i because I want to be one. When I was around 9 or 10 was when I decided that the Baha'i faith was my own. And then I think one thing, and I can't believe I didn't tell you about this while I was in college, and I do believe that, you know, in, in the Bible it talks about baptism and, you know, being reborn, and I feel like that's something that happens constantly over time. We have these experiences that, that we become reborn through. And so we're constantly, I don't ever believe I have become, I have arrived at being a Baha'i. It's a constant process of becoming, and every time you learn, you get through a certain test or you learn a new lesson, you come to a better understanding of what it means to be a Baha'i. For me, a big experience with that was I got, I had the amazing opportunity to go to East Africa when I was um, probably around 22 years old. That was the first time I'd ever traveled internationally. Canada doesn't really count. It's on the same <laughs> continent. So <laughs> that was the first time I ever traveled internationally and experienced being in a Baha'i community that, oh, my gosh, it was, it was the most beautiful, glorious experience because I remember that at the time, the Baha'is, we were trying to reach some goals internationally, different, different countries. We had international goals to reach. And we were given four years to reach these goals. Well, the first year of these four years, most of the goals were already reached by this Baha'i community in Eritrea. Just the energy and the, and the vitality, I hadn't seen that before. But then another thing that really was moving for me was the nobility of the people of Eritrea. This was... This was my first time ever going to the continent of Africa where my, the ancestors from my father's side of the family were taken centuries ago. And so for a lot of us, this trip, there are many of us on this trip were African Amer- of African descent. And so this was also a, a trip about healing that, those, that, that hurt, healing those centuries of oppression. I just remember one night visiting with this particular Baha'i community and going around the circle and everyone in that community, including us, was, you know, share, it was like a big sharing circle. And then when it got to the African-American believers, I just remember just the tears flowing, trying to express the, the pain of of slavery and the pain of racism in America and and I just remember just the the African believers just embracing everyone and and just really making making everyone feel like we come home and I think that that experience for me being a Baha'i and being in that, you know, visiting another Baha'i community across the world, but then visiting this Baha'i community that 
that lived on the continent that so many of our family ancestors came from was really a a phenomenal experience for me. So that was, for me, another rebirth as a Baha'i and and another really deepening my my love for the faith, my love for this this amazing revelation brought by Baha'u'llah. That kind of healing hasn't happened in America. And within a night, we were able to to find some some piece of, of solace from fellow Baha'is. So, yeah, I think that um, as far as independent investigation of the truth, I think some may see, a, see it as an intellectual journey involved with a lot of reading and study, but my experience of independent investigation of the truth has been very intuitive. It has been very heart-driven, I have read, (laughs) I do a lot of reading, but reading does not add up for me, does not add up as much as personal experience. I can read the writings of Baha'u'llah, but it's one thing to read the writings and understand them. It's another thing to see it and to experience it. And so that, for me, has made the faith very real. I think when we look at independent investigation of the truth, being very open, that there are different types of, of finding the truth. So that, that's my way <laughs> of independently investigating the truth of this faith. Well, Adalia, thank you so much for sharing your story. Mm, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Adalia Ellis, a Baha'i, an educator, who spent six years in Korea working in service to promote the oneness of humanity. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.